0: Mobile devices have taken over our world. There is a deeply negative aspect to this fundamental trend. That's our topic today on CXO Talk. Julie Albright, she is a professor at the University of Southern California, USC, and she's written this amazing, excellent book called Left to Their Own Devices, which I'm holding up, and you can see the cover. Julie Albright, how are you and welcome to CXO Talk. Hi, thanks for having me. So, Julie, tell us about your work and tell us about your book and tell us what you're up to.
1: I'm a digital sociologist, so I look at the intersection of technology and society, and I've spent my career thinking about what that means. Uh, I also have two counseling degrees as well as a sociology degree. So I kind of look at the big social trends. Then I put on my counseling hat and I think about what are the impacts on the ground for people, for relationships, for the workforce, et
0: cetera. And this book that you wrote, Left to Their Own Devices, how does that bring together these multiple threads that you've just described?
1: I see the constellation in the stars. I see patterns. And what I started to see was there were studies coming out from disparate fields where I started seeing that these were all related, and I call this the notion of coming untethered. It's the idea that young people are unhooking from many traditional things that other generations did routinely—things like getting married, or buying a home, or buying a car, or having children, uh, uh, things of that nature, joining uh, things like political parties, or going to church. And at the same time, they're hyper attached uh, to digital technologies. So this idea of coming untethered is really reshaping society and has vast implications.
0: So what's the connection between becoming untethered? And when you when you say untethered, you mean disconnected from the typical life experiences? Actually, that's we should begin there. That definition of untethered.
1: That idea is – sociologists call these social structures, things like marriage or the church, uh, uh, being in groups, things like that. And the longest studies that we have from sociology show that being sort of woven into the social fabric uh, lends itself to wellness – psychological stability, physical wellness, things like that. So as people sort of uproot and pull away from these things that are stabilizing structures, we're starting to see some instability happening as a result. We're sort of in this transitional period where as people pull away from these traditional things, that nothing's really come to take their place. Instagram is sort of like building your house on sand. It's not the same thing as, you know, being part of a church or a family or or things like that it's in terms of the psychological benefits. In fact, it's the opposite. These things sort of undermine people's sense of self and sense of well-being.
0: And why is this happening? I guess the central question is what is the connection between that and being tethered to digital devices?
1: I think of it as a context uh, that's happening. One is the, the evolution and mainstreaming of this digital era that we find ourselves in. Uh, the idea that when you go back uh, to really the era when consumers were involved in technology, they were involved with desktops, right? You'd work at a desk uh, with your computer, and when you walked away, you walked away, right? But with the advent of mobile phones, the iPhone and whatnot that were internet-enabled, the, or the advent of what we call mobility, uh, you've now taken this with you. And so then with social media and whatnot, there are drivers that are starting to drive almost addictive behavior to where you're you know, online almost constantly, uh, on the other side of the equation is the economy. So uh, kids uh, that are millennials, young people now, uh, grew up in a, a risk society where they saw a high divorce rate, for example, in their parents. They saw the housing crisis and financial crisis happening, a recessionary economy where you know maybe b- people lost their homes or lost their jobs, their parents. They saw this happening around them. So things that might have appeared as stable to prior generations, to these young millennials, for example, they might have seen these things as not as stable. And so they're sort of pulling away and and trying new things. And then on the other side of the coin, social media, dating apps, provide a plethora of choices for lifestyles, dating, things like that. So Uh, It's really sort of opened up the the lens of, of what people can think they can do and be in their lives. It's sort of reshaping, if you will, the American dream.
0: But Julie, aren't those positive things the opportunity to not be attached to material things to the extent that older people were, the ability to be mobile, to change jobs, to have access to information? These are typically we think of as positive attributes.
1: And nothing is going to be all good or all bad. And and again, I want to emphasize that coming untethered isn't simply about devices. Uh, it's about, uh, you know, unhooking from all these stabilizing social structures and then hyperattached to uh, devices and social media and things like that, which is sort of undermining uh, people. And, of course, there's great, great things. People can uh, join this gig economy and get work. I mean, particularly for people that might be out of the workforce, for example, they can go drive for Uber, or they can rent a room on Airbnb, and that really does keep some people afloat. So it's not all good or all bad. It's more complex than that. But the idea being that there is this large set of social trends afoot that most people aren't recognizing are all part of this larger picture of coming untethered.
0: So the idea is, as one becomes hyper tethered, to use your word, or rather hyper attached, to devices, you lose the attachment and therefore uh, lose the tethering, become untethered to traditional social structures.
1: That's right, and I think uh, an illustration of this, uh, I met a this funny fireman on a on an airplane, and. You know, as I'm moving through life, I talk to people about, you know, what have they seen in terms of this coming untethered in their world? And he had been retired. He'd been with the fire department for a long time. And he said, he talked about different changes. Like, for example, a lot of young people are—childhood, uh, for example, and young people, uh, it's all being driven indoors, You know, people used to play outside and do all these things. And so we see people that don't have the stamina or the physical strength that, for example, this guy had. So he talked about some of those changes where young recruits into the fire department aren't as strong or don't have as as much physical stamina as he and his buddies had. But the main thing, he said, Julie, the biggest change is social. He said he came back to the firehouse, and he said, we used to sit around the table and talk and get to know each other, and we'd play cards or have dinner together. And he says, I came back to the fire station, and nobody was around the table. Everybody was in their own rooms on their own devices. And, and he says, Julie, it's not the devices. It's the table. So it's this idea that, you know, we're missing sort of those social connections. And even here at USC recently, I did a panel with our dean of religious life, Ruin Sony, who's amazing, and he said he gets a question now every week that he didn't get five years ago, and that question is, how do I make friends? So the idea being that as people become more used to mediating conversations through their devices and they're used to being online and looking at those devices, which are kind of mesmerizing, there, there are deficits that are starting to show up, both physical and uh, social, in a sense.
0: What is it about devices that are so mesmerizing that, as you say, it's, just, it's so pervasive now?
1: It's so pervasive, Uh, you know, and teens literally, when they've been polled, say they're online almost constantly. In fact, the average teen, by the way, sends over 30, 35 texts a night after going to bed. So we see a global sleep deprivation happening as an inadvertent result of being on these devices. People, the majority of millennials, sleep with their cell phones even. So... What's happened is they're starting to bake into these apps like the Instagrams and Facebooks and things, qualities which are, in a sense, addictive. It's sort of like very much like the slot machines uh, in Las Vegas, where you pull the arm or you push the button, ding, 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 ding. Sometimes you win, sometimes you don't, right? Psychologists call that random reinforcement. And, and what we know about that is, it's the strongest behavioral reinforcer there is. And think about, for example, Instagram. There's a scrolling thing, much like that one-armed bandit that you see in Vegas, Sometimes the content's interesting, sometimes it's boring. So it's that exact same thing. So all of these are made to keep you coming back for more and they bake in these psychological drivers into the apps and that's what keeps people tied to them and and checking them all the time. People even check their phones now when someone else's phone, you might have seen this buzzes or dings, or, or they check this. Is that my? Oh, it's not my phone. You know, so so we're all sort of getting conditioned uh, to be on these devices all the time. It's hard to take a break from them. In fact,
0: I want to remind everybody we're speaking with Dr. Julie Albright. She's a professor at USC. We're talking about devices and the impact on individuals and society and business. So, Julie, Facebook, Twitter, other social media platforms are explicitly designing their user experience to create the same kind of mesmerizing effect as slot machine designers in Las Vegas.
1: Right. And, and the other thing that's sort of undermining, in a sense, it's enthralling, but it's also undermining people's sort of sense of well-being is on these platforms, when you think about an Instagram or Facebook or any of these, people are presenting, and especially young people who are, by the way, are more likely to be doing these things, Uh, so this is generationally uneven. Older people are less likely to connect to the internet, for example, on a mobile device. Uh, And what they're doing is they're presenting a very highly curated, highly Photoshop-stylized, fantastical version of themselves online, where it's almost like a false self that's out there. So Uh, Also, on the other hand, they're comparing themselves to other people's fantastical lives. I call this the virtual mirror effect. And it's more like instead of reflecting back uh, an actual view of self and other, it's reflecting back a warped sense. So people, young people particularly, are comparing themselves to these fabulous lives and they can never measure up. So it's a little bit, again, undermining of their self-esteem, creates anxiety, depression, because they say, well, why isn't my life fantastic like that? Not realizing that they're seeing a very thin slice and a very highly curated presentation of other people online. They're trying to live up to something that those people don't even live up to. So it's uh, it's complicated, but uh, this because they're so immersed in this, this is how they're constructing their identity and their sense of self now is through these digital interactions.
0: How pervasive is this? And also demographically, how does it break out and age?
1: When you look at this, this is uh, something that is more likely to be happen amongst what we call digital natives, those that grew up in an environment where there always was an internet. So we have sort of millennials in that group and, and younger than that. And now, in fact, if you go on YouTube uh, and even look up baby with iPad, you're gonna see that there are infants now who have better digital skills, who can run an iPad, pinching and opening and playing games and watching YouTube videos before they have the ability to speak. So we know that children's, infants' brains are shaped by what they take in that brains are malleable. They call this brain plasticity in neuropsych. And it's the idea that we're reshaping these children's brains because we're introducing digital content and and devices at such an early age. And last time I tried that search, I got over 60,000 results. And again, these kids can't speak yet, but they know how to use a digital device. So I think that's a very interesting thing that's happening. Older people are less likely to be involved on social media, connecting, as I said, uh, to the internet on a device. And we used to think there was something called a digital divide, that this was sort of divided by social class, you know, that wealthier families more likely to have devices and, and that lower-income lower folks were sort of being left behind. And that was a worry that people said that, oh, we're going to leave an entire group behind. But now it turns out that even lower-class folks in terms of income uh, are more likely to be on devices and are more likely to have all these devices going on at once, for example, both maybe a phone and a, and a TV, so I think what's, what's most instructive here is if you look at the kids of these tech scions in Silicon Valley, they're going to schools, by the way, private schools that don't have devices during the day. So we're, we're almost coming up with a new sense of a digital divide where these, these more highly educated parents and income parents are sending their kids away from the devices and, and lower income families are almost using it more as a digital babysitter. So that's something that uh, we could we could think about what that means.
0: That's very fascinating. So the so wealthier parents are sending their kids to schools where they aren't allowed where the devices are not present in order to force this disconnection or separation from devices.
1: That's right. And they're doing things that are linked to wellness happiness contentment things like movement and dance they're doing things like playing outdoors Uh, they're doing things like creating you know crafts and arts and 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 musical instruments and things like that And those are the kinds of things that are shaping, again, those neuropathways, the brains of these young children in a different way than those that are just on devices all the time. I mean, if you think about the device experience, the body and tactility are, are almost just not a part of it. I mean, touching a glass screen is not the same as playing outdoors in nature, for example, or dancing or things like that. So that idea of giving kids these experiences that are shaping how they think and how they view the world and, and giving them control to create and, and move about in a different way is, again, I think it's creating a new kind of digital divide that really no one's talking about yet.
0: So this new digital divide, uh, just elaborate more on the implications of that.
1: When you have all your interactions mediated, for example, I was just talking to an executive at a very large company that all of you know, uh, and he, he has read my book and said, I think, you know, these topics are as important as the ones that are coming up around climate change. And he says, Julie, I am seeing things now every day. He says, I drive my kid to school, and I drive by the bus stop. And he goes, you know what I saw? Every single kid was on a device. No one's talking to each other. He said, I don't even think they know each other. So this idea, I we're starting to see it here in the colleges in the universities, where students, again, asking, how do I make friends? I had my students make a business call to a fella, uh, and I said, hey, this guy's great. You know, give him a call, work out a, a semester project together. Great. Next week, I came back. Well, how'd the call go? Well, not very good. Well, what happened? There was an awkward silence. What awkward silence? So they called this guy up, got on the phone with him, and said nothing. And you know, that, that says it all. So it's it's not that these kids and young people are stupid. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is they're lacking in experience with socializing without a device. Uh, I see a lot of families that have kids at the tables now. You might have seen this yourself at restaurants where the kid's on an iPad or on a phone or has headphones on. So they're not getting the level of experience in these face-to-face social interactions, and they're showing up now at the college level but also as young workforce people, young workers, with some of these social interaction deficits simply because They haven't had as much experience with it. They're used to a mediated conversation. They can curate what they're saying. They're using emojis as prosthetic emotions, uh, and they just simply don't have the the experience in carrying on a conversation, for example, making a phone call, for example. They want that mediated experience.
0: Has this all been created by our hidden robot overlords?
1: (laughs) I don't think that a Mark Zuckerberg, and and I write about this in the book, I, I don't think that any of this was really intended. When you intend to connect everybody, as it were, unintended consequences are going to emerge. When I first started looking at this, it was a very niche thing that people were chatting on the internet and whatnot. And I... Followed it along. I actually wrote my dissertation on online dating and how people were presenting themselves online or misrepresenting themselves online, which is a huge theme now. Discerning fake from real, for example, is going to be one of the key problems of our era. So this idea that... uh, as you connect everybody unintended effects start to come out network effects start to come out that we never saw before so uh, these guys that created these networks they they weren't designing them to undermine young people's you know mental health but that's what's ending up happening inadvertently with being so connected to these networks
0: how did this patterns of apps that are mimicking slot machines designed to grab your attention how did that develop so you don't you don't think that from the start that was intentional but it evolved over time
1: yeah it evolved over time i mean if you think about facebook which is you know a massive global social network you know that evolved out of mark zuckerberg's idea at at uh you know, at Harvard, MIT, they have these Facebooks, which are faces of people that live in the in the housing, in the dorms, if it, as it were. and And that's how they get to know each other. And he's, and so he basically put that online. And at first, it was just meant for, college students. You had to have a .edu email address, I don't know if your viewers remember this, they might, to access Facebook. And I got to access it because I was here at USC. But after a while, it started opening up to the public, and now it's, you know, businesses are on there and everyone else. So these things didn't didn't just come out of the box the way they are, but they evolved over time. It's you know, we we are also social beings, right? We're curious about each other. We want to see what other people are doing. These are innate, evolved features, if you will, of being a human. And so they've sort of translated that sociability and those aspects into these online forums. But in some ways, again, as I said, there are unintended consequences of this as things like Photoshop, for example, that used to be used in magazines for models— now is in the hands of the every person with a quick touch of an app. So they can beautify their skin or look fabulous or put on some kind of filter to look better uh, in photos. So that's really a game changer. And these things evolved, iterated, let's say, over time.
0: We have a few questions from Twitter. They're kind of stacking up. Sal Rasa asks, he says, How do you help people inside companies? recognize these cultural shifts so that they focus not just on the technology with respect to their employees?
1: To me, the key thing is, first of all, recognizing this pattern of coming untethered and that you have these employees coming in. We have the highest rates, for example, in the college-age students of anxiety and depression, things like that, that we've seen in 30 years a lot of young people, millennials, say they don't have any friends. You know, so, so although we're more connected than ever, we're also less connected than ever. So one thing I've suggested is, and again, this isn't the workplace's job, but if you've got employees melting down and ghosting, uh, you know, not showing up or quitting all, uh, all of a sudden, that's not good for the business, right? So it may be. That the workplace is one of the last bastions where young people can be anchored or tethered or supported. So think about some of the uh, unintended consequences or benefits, you could say, of like the church. Fellowship, support, right? That, you know, you're in trouble, people are there for you. There's a a social aspect of it. People would get together for coffee after, uh, you know, a sermon or something. How can the workplace bring some of these aspects of these other organizations and structures that people, young people particularly, are pulling away from? How can the workplace bring some of these things in to ground employees and to, you know, help them to be healthier physically and mentally? Again, that's not the workplace's job, but I think that the workplace may be one of the last bastions for young people to anchor into. So we might have to rethink its role.
0: And going back to Twitter, Zachary Jeans raises a very, very interesting issue. He says tech companies are partnering with low income schools to get more devices into the hands of students. <laughs> but at the same time, wealthy parents, as you said, are sending their kids to schools that use fewer devices that stop that chain of hyper uh, hyper attachment to devices what about that i call that the new
1: digital divide and i think that we're starting to see emerging some of the undermining effects to young people's self-esteem again as they compare themselves to these fantastical images of others online and don't measure up and it makes them feel bad things like that uh, I think that we're starting to see those those unintended consequences emerging. Uh, and I don't think there's enough talk about that. I think that we're stuck in the original definition of the digital divide, that we have to bring these people on board. And yes, you do want digital skills and whatnot, but I think that limiting that time, you know, having time around the family dinner table, for example. And again, I'm not trying to be 1952. What I'm looking at is... The changes over time. What changed, and how did we get to this mental and physical health crisis that we're in? Uh, and and that's what I'm looking at. What changed to bring young people to this moment? And that's what I'm trying to sort of unpack here. So uh, yeah, I think that's a huge issue. The idea that kids aren't playing outside. You go into a lot of these neighborhoods, you're not going to see any kid on the street. So you know things like scouts used to give kids, you know, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, opportunities to be out in nature, for example, which is very healing. Uh, By the way, there's doctors in Europe now that are actually prescribing nature for people to lower anxiety, for example. So these these kind of experiences that were routine for, let's say, baby boomers growing up, young people just simply aren't having them. Uh, So... The idea of, of creating these moments for people is important. But yeah, that's a great point. Uh, and I think that we just need to realize that there's some public health issues that go hand in hand with too much device connectivity.
0: Pretty extraordinary the degree, the tentacles that through society, through our lives, that this issue has. I find that incredible.
1: And that's the thing, you know, I I started to see these issues and and it's not simply the devices, it's the combination, the combination effect of pulling away from these stabilizing structures of before, as I mentioned, you know, things like, you know, being married or being part of a neighborhood and and things like that, and hyperattaching to digital technologies. It's this combination of things. So it's not simply being attached to the device, it's what's missing or what other behaviors aren't being done while that's happening. So what's being done instead of, so instead of going outside in nature, which has a healing and restful, peaceful effect, and also is good for your physical self as well, you're indoors playing a video game or playing on a device, you know, texting or on social media, uh, you know, so, so these are the kinds of things that we need to start thinking about now, the behaviors that have been displaced by device connectivity. That's where the secret or the key lies to getting us back to health again, I think.
0: That clearly lies with families to at least a certain and probably large extent And we have a comment on Twitter from Arsalan Khan who points out that pediatricians recommend that or are recommending that kids should not use devices until the age of 14. However, for many parents, this is difficult and extremely unrealistic advice to follow. So, how do we handle this issue?
1: I think that's a great comment. Thank you for saying that. Uh, I think it is very difficult. You know, for example, you think about uh, uh, one of my friends when we were discussing this, in fact, said, think back, you know, he was saying when he was a kid, the biggest, like, if you got in trouble, what did the parents say? Go to your room, right? You can't go outside. Now that's where the kids want to be in their room. They did a study where they asked the kids uh, in Britain, What would you do over the summer, over your summer break? 65% of them said they spent the time in their room alone on a device. So this idea that this becomes the new normal, and I, I think that we have to have organizations, we have to have families that are starting to wake up to the fact that it's not all fun and games, that there are some unintended consequences here that need to be dealt with. Uh, there's a great group called Brick, for example, where you come together. You 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 know a brick is like a dead phone, right? You turn off your phones and you sing together for an hour or two. You know, so these kinds of things. And what I'm suggesting here is that maybe parents need to realize and have play dates where there aren't devices involved or, or video games involved, things like that, or maybe outings or hikes in nature, or things like that, that don't involve device play. But it's hard. I mean, I get it. Parents are working. It's easy to give the kid a digital babysitter and quiet them down with a device. But, uh, you know, I think if we can understand that there are some health consequences of doing that, you know, maybe they'll think twice. And and again, I'm not throw away the devices, but we certainly need to figure out a balance. And I think that's what it is. We came racing out of the box with, you know, the iPhone internet enabled phones, and now there's been enough time where we can step back and take a critical distance at the at this thing and take a look and say, "Hey, where are we at and is this where we want to be?" And if not, how do we sort of rebalance or bring that pendulum back to center where we have a balance between our physicality and our, you know, evolved needs as an embodied human and being on a device?
0: Is achieving this balance in any way, shape, or form realistic?
1: For some people, it's going to be very difficult. I mean, young people particularly, their lives, their social lives orbit around being online. So, uh, and, and, it, and again, I think the key is, and I think that's what your uh, Twitter um, person just said, the difficulty is, again, let's say a family said, hey, son, go play outside. Well, what's he going to do? All the other kids are inside, right? So, you know, it's hard to sort of uh, break the patterns that are emerging. But again, I think we've sort of fallen, you know, almost in a dream state. We've sort of you know, uh, sleepwalking through life in in this in this area where we just do it. It's fun. It's there. It's with us all the time and we just almost don't think about it. We have to be more cognizant, more aware of our behaviors and why we might want to create that balance. It's it's not easy to do. And I think again, we need groups like the group at Brick or family like neighborhoods or at a school to one recognize that there's an issue here and to create opportunities for us to be together and socialize and and be physical and outside. Uh, we need groups to come together uh, to create those moments for people. I think
0: for groups to come together in this way requires some type of coordinated activity. Where does that activity begin, and who's responsible, if anybody, for creating and initiating that those kinds of activities?
1: And again, if you think about the workplace, I mean, maybe there's a way to. You know, come together if you're going to do some offsite. You know, maybe you do it in the mountains where you can do some hikes together, or you know, there's swimming, or you know, maybe there's ways to bring these moments together um, in as a, as an intentional rebalancing act uh, for employees. I mean, we're we're seeing uh, physical issues uh, again, sleep deprivation issues, mental issues, and and frankly. You know, there's people are telling me a lot of their stories. One guy said, you know, he'd gone on a trip with his family. The daughter, the teenage daughter, dropped her phone into the Venice Canal, and it was, you know, the end of the world, of course. But a couple of days later, she was, you know what, Dad? I'm actually kind of relieved to have a couple of days off without constantly being on a device. And he said, we had the best trip, and we were all together, and, you know, so— Uh, at first, it's almost like when you pull away from an addiction, you're going to have some kind of withdrawal sense of the thing. But after a bit, there may be that sense of relief. But again, we do have to have some coordinated efforts uh, towards moments without those devices.
0: Let's talk about employers. Yeah. What's the impact on employers of this? And what should employers do?
1: There's a lot of impacts on employers. I, in fact, wrote a whole chapter on the untethered worker. So there are many implications for the workforce. And one I think that's really key for uh, people running businesses, managers and, and executives to understand is that there's a changing value set and behavioral shift. That are is driven by or exacerbated by digital device connectivity. For example, the idea of time compression. Uh, for example, um, a friend of mine was revisiting old movies with his son, who is just going into college, and they were watching 2001: A Space Odyssey. And you know what seemed gripping and very futuristic and amazing when he was a young man, his son in here watching. And he turns to his son and he says, Well, what do you think, son? You know, thinking this is great. And the son says, Well, it's been 11 minutes and they're still apes. You know, so what seemed fast paced and fascinating and amazing at the time now seems plodding and pedantic and slow. So translating that into the workforce, I call this time compression. Young people coming in are expecting to zoom to the top. Much quicker than previous generations. This idea of paying your dues. Uh, I had students here at school ask a senior vice president of a major telecom company, Well, how do I start out at your level? You know, so this idea that they expect almost instant promotions and things like that, and they want a very clear path to move up. So young people now are expecting a promotion within the first year. So this idea of time scale or the pacing of life has shifted, and that's something for older managers to understand uh, around younger employees that are coming in. So having a path up and clear-cut steps how to get there is going to be important. Otherwise, there's a perception that there are millions of jobs out there on things like Monster and you know LinkedIn and all over, and employees will just disappear. So that idea... Employees are expecting device connectivity. They want to be able to to connect to social media and whatnot while they're at work. Uh, They're expecting uh, to be able to work remotely. You know, why can't I work in the Starbucks or things like that? And there's been a lot of discussions about that. IBM is saying, hey, you all come back in here and work shoulder to shoulder or you're going to be fired. Uh, And then there's other companies like Automatic that owns uh, WordPress, and they're saying, hey, nobody's coming into the office. So we're going to sell our beautiful office space and go all in on remote. So somewhere in there, there's probably a happy medium. But the point being that around the value set change, young workers want this kind of flexibility in time, in place, to work remotely when they want, things like that. So can workplaces create perhaps a hybrid model where they can have some of that and some of the shoulder-to-shoulder uh, to accommodate this changing value and behavioral set around devices?
0: And of course, I speak with many chief information officers, and over these last number of years, one of their primary mandates has been to ensure this BYOD bring your own device and seamless kind of connectivity so that companies are attractive can create a, attractive workplaces for these employees who demand this kind of flexibility
1: that's right and the other side effect again one of the unintended consequences is that young people are increasingly growing up in a world where their experiences are simulated as I said, attendance or participation in, say, things like scouting, Boy Scouts, for example, is you know diminishing to a huge degree, things like that, where kids aren't getting the hands-on experiences that they used to get. So these guys, for example, that I'm around a lot that are, for example, building data centers around the world, we have all this increased data, we have to have data centers to process and store all these things. And they, they're having trouble finding guys that can do construction work, that can do these hands-on things. Uh, Home Depot, for example, uh, has created videos. You can see these on YouTube, how to use a tape measure. Yeah, it's a little minute video uh, on YouTube. Like it, these young people, many of them are simply not getting these analog experiences. So uh, experiences that you may take for granted, they may not have ever had. Making phone calls, for example, as I mentioned before, when the iPhone came out, 90% of the time it was used for phone calls and 10% for apps. Now that's switched. 90% of the time it's used for apps and only 10% for phone calls. So the workplace is going to have to train people on things like how to make break the ice on a cold call with a client. Things that you might do routinely in life, these people, younger people, simply haven't had the level of experience with these analog uh, activities that that are so crucial to the workforce.
0: You know, just the other day, I was chatting with a senior executive from one of the largest tech companies, and. She mentors some young people, and she was describing exactly this problem. She's saying, hey, you need to go out. It was, she, she mentors female uh, young execs. You need to go out and network. And the, the, sometimes the mentees just don't know how to do that at all.
1: Here at the university, uh, one of the house moms talked about the gals and, in the sorority, and she said they quickly run out of things to say they've sort of lost the art of conversation and and I said well what do they do well they pick up their phones and start texting someone else and so you'll see that that sort of thing and to me these aren't built ins like you know maybe someone's more extroverted or introverted but this is a skill set for example carrying on a conversation or or breaking the ice on a on a phone call for example but there, these are skills that you might, again, have taken for granted. Your younger workers are perhaps not going to have the experience level, so you might have to step back. And that's what I did here at the university. I had my brother, who's you know top sales manager in the world for his company. I had him Skype in and do a little primer. How to break the ice with a cold call client, and he gave him some great tips for doing that. And he's the best in the world at that. But there are the point being there are skills that you can learn. I'm not saying these people are inept or 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 can't learn or or will never be able to learn. Point being is that that ourselves as managers, myself as a professor with my students. We have to go step back to sort of a 101 level on certain skills that maybe prior generations would have just come in with routinely and teach these skills. And as you mentioned, mentor these skills into young leadership so that they can be successful and feel confident about themselves.
0: Julie, we have about one minute left, and I'd like you to give us your—you travel around the world—you're Giving talks, speaking with all of these people, and so in one minute, can you give us the solution to this problem? Uh, and Arsalan Khan on Twitter has just jumped in, and he uses the term "device detoxification." So, so give us the solution to device for device detoxification, and what we should do to change the world in that way in one minute, please.
1: Things like physicality are important. Uh, Spending time in nature is important. And these are all the things that we're pulling away from as we move our lives indoors and people are increasingly around the world living in urban settings where we're moving further and further away from, you know, physical activity from nature. We need to make spaces in our lives for these things uh, so that we can reconnect with our bodies, ourselves, our spirituality, you know, that sense of, you know, just a, a lifted mood and spirit. And so uh, hopefully we can find ways in the workplace and at home and at schools, you know, to do that.
0: Well, this brings to a close a very thought provoking episode of CXO Talk. We've been speaking with Professor Dr. Julie Albright, who wrote this very compelling book that I'm holding up. It's called Left to Their Own Devices. It's an important topic. Julie Albright, thank you so much for taking time to be here with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Everybody, before you go, please subscribe on YouTube and hit the subscribe button at the top of our website so you can get our newsletter and tell your friends. We have great shows coming up. Check out CXOTalk.com. We will see you again next time. Thanks, everybody, and I hope you have a great day. Bye-bye.